2: is
3: the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot on the program today. Our one guest will be Professor Richard Wolff. I want to ask him, what is financialization and how has it damaged America? It plays into my rant today, which I'll get to in a minute. You know, it's a large issue. And Professor Wolf, of course, Professor of Economics, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say about that. But to start out our day here, my rant over at HartmanReport.com is titled, What is the Wealth of a Nation? And, And then to point out that it's time to break the curse of voodoo economics and return to manufacturing at the core of our economy if we want to make our country wealthy. So, you know, let me just lay this out. China, the, the 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 news hook, as it were, for this story today is that it was reported this week that last year, late last year, early this year, China surpassed the United States as the wealthiest nation in the world. What does that mean? Does that mean they have the most money in their checking accounts? Turns out, no. It means they have the most actual wealth. Now, yeah, money represents wealth, but that's not what this is about. What is, for example, your wealth? I mean, you know, look around you. If you're at home, you're seeing a living room with furniture, a television in the kitchen. There are appliances, dishes, cookware. Rooms have beds, desks, bookshelves, tools, computers. The house sits on a foundation. It's made out of two-by-fours and sheetrock and copper wiring and plumbing and siding and roofing. All of that is wealth. This is all stuff that has value. Value, in this sense, isn't cost. Cost, you know, the, the value is intrinsic to the items themselves, their ability to, to make life better for us. You know, the, yeah, they were purchased at a particular time, at a particular price, with something else of value, for example, money in exchange for hours of your work. But because most of them are manufactured goods that will last for years, decades, maybe even centuries, they represent lasting wealth. And all of them together, your home, all the stuff in it, that's part of your wealth. Now add your home to all the others in the country of all sizes and and shapes and all sorts. Add in the commercial space in the country, all the buildings, the farms and the farmland, everything touched by human hands or machinery. And what you have basically is the wealth of the nation. So how does a nation create wealth? Well, if there's a factory down the street that's taking in freshly sawed wood and turning it into furniture, they're literally creating wealth. They're taking the raw material of a forest, they're applying human labor to it, and they're producing things of lasting value. That's wealth. But what if they're making hamburgers instead of furniture? I mean, it's a continuous thread from nature to your mouth, right? Plants are grown, they're fed to animals, the animals are slaughtered, they're they're uh, you know, processed, they're they're added to pickles and tomatoes and onions and lettuce and buns and boof poof, you've got you know uh, ketchup, you've got a you've got a hamburger. But does that re- represent wealth? No, it doesn't. And this is the difference between a manufacturing economy and a service economy. You know, Ronald Reagan, notwithstanding, I realize he tried to reclassify McDonald's as a manufacturing facility because our manufacturing numbers started falling off the edge of the earth in the 1980s. But creating burgers doesn't create any more wealth than if I loaned you $1,000 and you paid me back $1,100, with, you know, $100 interest. Does that create wealth? Well, it puts $100 in my pocket, but where'd it come from? Did it get created? Out of nowhere as a result of human labor, like, you know, turning a piece of wood into a piece of furniture? No, it didn't get created. It got transferred. That $100 interest was transferred from you to me, or vice versa, if you had loaned me the money. That's called financial activity, right? As Adam Smith wrote in his book, Wealth of Nations, back in 1776... Well, actually, the title of the first chapter of his book lays it out. He, he was into a long titles. And this was the title of the first chapter, quote, Of the causes of improvement in the productive powers of labor and of the order according to which its produce is naturally distributed among the different ranks of the people. In other words, the productive power of labor is what produces wealth. Adam Smith wrote, this is a quote from his book, Wealth of Nations. The most opulent nations indeed generally excel, excel all their neighbors in agriculture as well as in manufacturing, but they are commonly more distinguished by their superiority in the latter in manufacturing than in the former in agriculture. When Reagan tried to call fast food manufacturing, William Sarin in the New York Times called him out. This was May 31st, 1982. The title was the headline in the New York Times, Big Mac supplants big steel as manufacturing jobs lag. Quote, When steel is made, for example, jobs are provided not only in the steel mills, but ultimately in the production of items made from steel, such as cars, farm equipment, home appliances, and in the sale and repair of those items. When a hamburger is sold, it's merely consumed. No further jobs are created. But jobs in the steel industry decreased 14%, and today the industry has 30% unemployment. Keep in mind, this was the Reagan 80s. As our country began to collapse under the burden of Reagan's neoliberal ideas. I lived and studied in Beijing back in November of 1986, and I remember standing in Tiananmen Square, there's this giant, you know, a major road, like a you know, 10 12 lane road, uh, just kind of across the way from Tiananmen Square. And I remember standing there in Tiananmen Square and watching this ocean of black bicycles, keep in mind, this was 1986, an ocean of black bicycles. Maybe every 10 minutes a single car would go by. They were always black limousines. You know, they were government officials. The air was thick with smoke from coal, which was piled in these coal briquettes were piled in neat little three foot tall pyramids on the back streets of the residential streets. And everybody heated just one room in their house. This was November. No skyscrapers, no neon lights, no vibrant storefronts. The streets were covered with coal dust. The houses and apartments were gray and drab, and everybody dressed the same in cheap cotton clothing. That was 1986 in China. The very next year, Deng Xiaoping decided to reject neoliberalism, being pushed on him by Reagan and the Chicago school boys, and instead threw in with Alexander Hamilton's American plan. I've I've talked about this a lot. And China now creates wealth by making things. And as a consequence, now that they have all this wealth, uh, you know, when we buy things from them, we give them dollars. What do they do with the dollars? Well, they ha- you have to spend dollars ultimately in the United States because we created them. So they bring the dollars back to the United States and they buy our real estate. In, in just 2017 through 2018, they picked up 80,000 U.S. residential properties, which is driving up the price of real estate. They're buying our company. Remember Smithfield Foods? The company where Donald Trump ordered workers back to work, they've got 500 farms across the United States. They call them farms. I call them factory farms. They're owned by China or Chinese. Forty percent of the asset values of all companies in America now are foreign-owned. Why? Because we are not making things here anymore. This this whole Milton Friedman's whole neoliberal free trade agenda has just devastated America. We've sold off our companies and our real estate to foreign interests. And now we've got these so-called supply chain disruptions. And everybody's trying to blame this on on Biden. Isn't it amazing? All the media oh supply chain disruptions. Uh, Joe Biden's in trouble. Well, why do we have supply chain disruptions? Because we have a supply chain to Asia. Why do we have a supply chain to Asia? Reaganomics. Neoliberal free trade policy. Reagan renegotiated the general agreement on tariffs and trade. Reagan and Bush negotiated NAFTA. And yeah, Clinton signed it and went along with the program. I mean, you know, nobody has pushed back on this other than Trump. And he did it in a completely incompetent, totally confused way. So basically, you know, there's been no effective pushback on this since the 80s. In 1975, we had a $16 billion trade surplus. Now we're averaging $700 billion a year in a trade deficit, which means that basically every year, another $700 billion of America gets sold to some, you know, to to people, businesses, or governments outside the United States. finance doesn't make a damn thing. Nathan Lewis in Forbes, he said, our financial system is basically a bloated parasite. During the 60s, the financial industry accounted for 6.2% of all employment income, 14% of corporate profits. By 2014, it accounted for 12.5% of all employment income and 26% of all corporate profits. And finance doesn't make a damn thing. We've got to start manufacturing again in the United States. We've got to start manufacturing in the United States. What we need is an honest debate about how to make that transition. Nobody's even discussing it. Instead of they're sitting around complaining that Joe Biden hasn't been able to magically fix the supply chain that 40 years of Reaganism brought us. How is this a, a, you know, a good thing? We have to begin talking about this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls and and more of the news of the day. I also want to get into why is the media hyping inflation and ignoring the good news and good economic news right after this. Mary in Sunrise Beach, Missouri. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today?
4: I would like you to ask Professor Wolf and yourself. My thinking on the tax issues, strictly taxes, just wipe the whole tax code out and just say, okay, everybody has to declare once here what their wealth is. You know, forget about wages. Forget about everything. It's just what is the worth of your total assets? As if you had died.
3: Well, that's what, that's what Elizabeth Warren proposed, you know. Mean, it wouldn't kick in until well, your wealth was over a billion dollars, I think.
4: Well, my thing is keep your first 10 million, even if, you know. Sure. Yeah. If you have 10 million dollars worth of wealth, keep it. And anything over that, whatever it's worth, it might be, you know, 40 billion for all we know. But whatever that's worth, over 10 million you
3: pay 60% tax on it boom yeah you know there there have been countries actually wealth taxes were a big thing in Europe for a while they've largely gotten rid of them you know as as neoliberalism crept around the globe but I think you're onto yeah, something, Mary. I think you're onto it's it.
4: It's the only true way to even things out. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I'm, I'm not sure I go to the sixty percent, but
3: but I get your idea, Mary. I got to I got to move along and th- and thank you for the call, Dave in Silicon, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today?
5: Hey, Professor Hartman. Yes, Professor Hartman. Okay, there's so much confusion out there about class, middle class, working class. You know, the, the scientific way to do this is by you're looking at the means of production. If you own the means of production, in other words, if you're the 1%, then you are a capitalist. If you are among the 99% or so, 90-plus percent, if you have to work for a living, or if you're dependent on a salary, a wage, or, or, or what you call it, uh, retirement, you are working class. And the middle class is actually a very small group, not to be confused with middle income bracket, but middle class are people that own the means of production and yet still have to work. Yeah. Like dentist, I'd, I'd like put a, a finer
3: point on it, Dave. I you know, I, I have never lived off of passive income in my life. And that's my definition of a capitalist. On the other hand, I've owned a bunch of businesses. That's my definition of an entrepreneur. But, you know, the money that came out of those was both my work and the people that worked for me. I suppose you could argue that that's capital. But, anyway, Dave, thank you for the call. Tom Harbin here with you. Okay, the other thing I wanted to mention, I just wanted to bring this up is, this is making me crazy. This is about the media. Eric Bollert is writing about this in his newsletter. I believe it's today. It might have been yesterday afternoon, but, uh, you know, one or the other. Here's what he wrote. He said, when the U.S. job reports was released for the month of October showing a surge, a surging economy adding 531,000 jobs. This is mind-boggling. It's is better than anything Donald Trump ever did as well as revising estimates for September and August, confirming an additional 235,000 positions were created. What did NBC Nightly News lead with? What did ABC World News tonight lead with? Neither network, he he notes, considered 766,000 new jobs to be an important development. Contrast that, he writes, This is his press run newsletter. Contrast that to last Wednesday when news broke that inflation had jumped 6.2 percent last month, fueling concerns about spiraling consumer costs. That evening, both NBC Nightly News and ABC World News tonight slotted the inflation story as the second most important development in the entire news cycle. So Biden is putting the economy back together. In many ways, in many ways, you know, significantly Uh, We've increased food stamp benefits by 25% thanks to the Biden administration. We saw strong retail sales third month in a row in October. Those numbers just came out. Goldman Sachs says unemployment is going to continue to fall. I mean, yeah, we had 6.2% inflation in October, but we're better off, generally speaking. Julian Coronado, president and founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, told the Washington Post, disposable income has been about nine and a half percent higher in 2021 than it was before the pandemic even when you factor in inflation so we're starting to get out of the red state minimum wage job trap at least in the blue states and the purple states but the media the media doesn't have a thing to say about this I mean, you know, they, they do the story about fossil fuel prices, right? Gasoline, six dollars a gallon here at this weird little station in some weird part of California. Six bucks a gallon. Oh my God, can you believe it? Well, the price of oil is up 60 dollars a barrel. And there's 42 barrels in a, or gallons in a barrel. So that's, you know, about a buck and a half a gallon of gasoline. And surprise, surprise! The price of gasoline is up by about a buck and a half. Now, who raised that price? Was that Joe Biden? Uh, no, it was Saudi Arabia and Russia, by and large. You know, the, it was OPEC, the countries, countries that control most of the world's oil supply, are cutting back on what they're shipping. Why? Well, I think it's fairly obvious why. They see that the entire world. I mean, look at COP 26. The whole, the entire, whole, entire world is saying. You know, we're going to get off fossil fuels. And so those countries whose principal store of wealth is fossil fuels are saying, holy crap, we better sell this stuff for as much as we can while we still can. So why does the American press make it out like this is some sort of failure of the Biden administration? And why aren't we why aren't more people beyond just me and Laura Clausen over on Daily Co's calling this stuff out? incredible why is the media hyping inflation and ignoring all the really good economic news and i would add to it by the way they're doing this is what's driving down biden's approval numbers and then what do they do they do stories about well in a generic matchup people would rather have a republican than a democrat well of course after all this bad news that you've focused on Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two ends or enter the code Hartman with two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: Tom Hartman here with you, and picking up your calls, Carrie in Arlington Heights, uh, Illinois. Hey, Carrie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I want to ask you how you think your theory differs
4: from mercantilism.
3: It's <laughs> a good, good question. I, there's a lot of different ways to define mercantilism. Let me give you two different definitions, okay? This is from okay. uh, Investopedia. Mercantilism was an economic system of trade that spanned from the 16th to the 18th century, mercantilism is based on the principle that the world's wealth was static and consequently many European nations attempted to accumulate the largest possible share of that wealth by maximizing imports and limiting uh, imports, okay? So basically it's, you know, we're going to make our money by making things and selling them in other countries, Uh, you know, the definition of mercantilism and actually that's what i'm recommending i'm not recommending that we do it in ways that leave us with massive trade surpluses although that's what we had throughout most of the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries but then you go over to wikipedia where apparently the neoliberals have rewritten the definitions this is the mercantilism as an economic policy that is designed to maximize exports and minimize imports it promotes monarchy, aristocracy, clericalism, militarism, imperialism, colonialism, tariffs and subsidies on traded goods that achieve, to achieve that goal. Really? You know, so, well, what's your definition of mercantilism, Kerry? Well, I would go with your first definition personally,
4: but I'm very rusty on my international economics, but I don't think it's changed all that
3: much. No, well, it, and this goes 30. back to, to David Ricardo. It's basically, you know, that yeah. if your country, and you could do the same thing with household income as much as I dislike those comparisons, you know, if you have, you know, $30,000 a year in income and you spend more than $30,000 a year, which is basically what we've been doing. We have a $700 billion trade deficit just with China. No, actually, that's with the world. If you spend more than that $30,000, you go into debt. If you spend less than $30,000, you accumulate a surplus. Um, you know, if, if, if your income every year is $30,000. Yeah, I think you could say the same thing about individual nations. Either you are in debt, you are static, or you are in surplus. And I'm arguing that we should be, in, we should be static, that, that we should not be buying more than we are selling. I'm sorry, Kerry, I interrupted you in mid-sentence. No problem. I mean, my, my theory would be that we need to
4: diversify our economy yeah and you need heavy lifting jobs for certain people and that would be manufacturing so but i i do think the world is changing you know a lot of this stuff is getting automated so oh, of course i'm not sure how that plays out and value of labor Well, it,
3: it, is- it does here here's how it plays out first of all somebody has to make the machines that are the automation right you know the the tool and die shop my dad worked at most of what they made wasn't things that made finished parts. Most of what they made were parts for other machines that made things. Mostly for General Motors and Fisher Body. So, number one, automation does create jobs because somebody's got to make the automation, somebody's got to service the automation. You have to build factories to make the automation. Number two, the automation is increasing your productive capacity. It means that instead of making 1,000 screws an hour, you can make 10,000 screws an hour. Well, that means that your manufacturing is generating more wealth faster. It might do it with fewer people, And I acknowledge that. I'll put that right up front. You know, bringing manufacturing back to America is not going to bring back the tens of millions of jobs that have vanished, but it is going to bring back a significant fraction of them. My point is not so much about jobs, although that's real. It's about wealth. The only way a nation can build wealth is by manufacturing things. But why isn't the know-how behind these things wealth? Well, arguably it is in as much as it can be translated into things that have lasting value. You know, back to, you know, Adam Smith's example. If you take a a tree limb that, you know, I mean, setting aside the value of nature, which is a whole other argument, but if you take a tree limb that in terms of an American economy has no value and you apply a couple of hours of human labor to it with with a jackknife and you whittle it into an axe handle, you now have something you can sell for five bucks for the next 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years, right? It has, well, it has value. So what you have done is you have increased the wealth of your entire country by $5 by making that ax handle, by applying labor to it. On the other hand, you know, if, if, if we're loaning each other money at interest, and somebody's keeping the interest, we're not making anything. We're not producing anything of value. We're just moving money around. If we're making hamburgers, you know, yeah, it's an essential to live, but we're not creating wealth. We're just, you know, moving things around. And that's why I say manufacturing is the key to the whole thing. Well, the real value of McDonald's is not the hamburgers. The real value is the real estate. <laughs> <It's> so- <laughs> increasingly, increasingly, which is a whole other argument. Kerry, i got to move along, but thank you. Thank you very much for the call. It's good to hear from you. Uh, Paul in Zillow, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today?
6: Well, good morning, Tom. As a small American manufacturer, I appreciate your opening.
3: Thank you. Um, for, you mind for my years, asking please. what
6: you make? Uh, we make wine. Very cool. I believe, yeah.
3: I believe you have some in your house. Okay. Oh yeah, you're right. I do. Yes. Uh, remind me of the name of your vineyard. Paradiso del Sol. Paradiso del Sol. You're right, and I love your wines. They're great. Oh, um and, and 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 ordered them online. So you know yes, you're, you're you're kind of on the edge of you know is that manufacturing or not because if I'm hanging on to your wine for years and years. And it's increasing in value, then arguably that's a thing of value. If, on the other hand, you made it this year and I drank it this year, that's more like making hamburgers, isn't it, Paul?
6: Well, you know, that's a good thing, except that McDonald's doesn't grow anything. Our wine starts with water, so- soil, and sunshine. Ah. So we okay. Grapes. We are, you know, we are starting with when we bought this farm, there were no vineyards on it. We have developed the vineyards. In that process, we've increased the value of our property, so we are paying property taxes on a regular basis. We then produce wine, and we don't, you know, unlike McDonald's, which receives a truckload of food on the morning and ships food out all day, uh, our wines take years. So Mm -hmm. we process the grapes, aging the wine before bottling between one and three years, then we bottle it and age it longer. Every year I have inventory, I pay tax on that. So I'm actually paying wealth taxes regularly. You're right. Property
3: every tax is a wealth tax. We all pay a of wealth off. tax.
6: Yeah, every bottle of wine that leaves our farm has had an inventory tax for at least two years. Wow. Wow. So I view that as a wealth tax, and a lot of our wines don't leave for five years, so we're we paying taxes five times on that wine. Very cool. And so the, you know, that's one of the real challenges of how we can equitably tax wealth. I mean, most Americans, their biggest, and you've said this many times, their biggest uh, Substantial wealth is in their home, and they're paying wealth taxes on their home, property taxes.
7: Right.
6: And uh, yeah, then then the question is, how do we deal with these people who are um, who have become obscenely rich and are getting richer? Because you know, one one of the things challenges for me the last couple of years is we've always tried to use only products made in America. So I've always intentionally bought bottles manufactured in Seattle, Washington, out of recycled glass. Mm-hmm. But something happened in 2016. Suddenly, all the winers that had been buying Chinese glass uh, were now finding American glass to be more price competitive. And now, as a little guy, it's almost impossible for me to get the bottles that I used to purchase. I've actually ended up having to bottle wine in Chinese bottles, because currently we have oh. a real wine bottle shortage problem in America. That's
3: amazing. That's amazing. Um, so... So the so the bottom, Paul I, I want to move along to the next caller the, the bottom line point you wanted to make was
6: that we are uh, we at least are paying a wealth tax on a, on a very regular basis on our on in our manufacturing process okay
3: apropos of the earlier caller who said we should just dump all the income taxes and go with the wealth tax I get it and Paul Paradiso del Sol your uh, your winery I just I want to tip my hat to you guys you make great wines thank you for the call well thank you Thank you. Thank yeah, you very been much. Good talking to you, Ted in Washington D.C. Hey, Ted, what's up?
8: Hi, Tom. I, I was I was calling because you uh, asked the question about why manufacturing is you know so so bad in this country, and I, I think I have at least one part of the answer. And I think part of the problem comes from the way that we talk about manufacturing. Uh, a few years ago, you had a lot of people who were you know, pushing the idea of young people going to college and getting, a, you know, a career as a programmer or whatever. And, you know, they would say, well, you know, if you, you go to college, you could get a really good career. And if, if you can't go to college, then you could always learn a trade and you could make a good salary. You know, and the way it was expressed was it was it was sort of demeaning to anyone who who you know would rather make something tangible you know, and have a career that way? It wasn't career, uh, considered a career. And, and I think that, that that's part of the problem is that we don't see people who actually make things
3: or work with their hands in the same way that we see somebody sitting in front of a computer. I agree with you, Ted, and I think that that's, you know, uh, an important point, but it, it builds on the foundation of what Reagan did to labor and w- what Reagan did to manufacturing, which was, you know, when he came into office, a third of American jobs were unionized. Most of those are manufacturing jobs. By the time the Reagan-Bush administration was over, we were down to 10%. We're down, down to 6% in the private workforce. And as a consequence, you know manufacturing. You know, if somebody's looking at going to college and ending up making you know sixty thousand bucks a year as a lawyer or more, um, versus you know taking a manufacturing job and making twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars a year at at you know some fairly low wage because there's no union there, it's like you know why bother? And you know, Can so I give you a- go ahead. Can I give you an example of of how this works out?
8: Yeah. Uh, I'm a I'm a practicing jeweler. I've, I've been a, you know, a jeweler for the past 50 years, mm-hmm. and I, I was looking at uh, you know at this uh, job listing site. I think it was Indeed.com, and they had hosted one job for a uh, an entry-level job working for Amazon in their warehouse, and they were going to pay $18 an hour. And in that same job site, they had a listing for, they were asking for a master jeweler, and they were willing to pay $25 an hour. Now, the way that I saw it is that, you know, to become a jeweler at all, you, you have to, you know, train for at least three or four years, and then for another 10 or 15 years, you'd have to have, you know, that would give you the experience where you could, sort of reached the level to be a master jeweler. So Hmm. for all that time, instead of getting a job at a warehouse, you know, I could work all that extra time and make another $7 an hour.
3: Which is uh, not quite worth the effort. Is that your point, Ted? <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe you guys need a union. <laughs> I don't know.
8: We don't, that's the problem. See, we don't have a union. That's yeah. that's the problem.
3: Yeah. There you go.
8: The union helps to decide what a
3: job is worth. Yeah. So really, you know, my op-ed today is entirely about what wealth is and how manufacturing affects it. But if we're going to raise incomes, we also need to unionize. Ted, thank you. Yep. Thank you. Great story. In spokane washington hey james what's up good morning thomas how are you i am well how are you today i'm not in jail and i'm not in the hospital yet <laughs> yeah still so, still breathing still talking so what's on your mind james
2: upright well apparently you know it's clear we have a financial economy okay and uh, financial yeah yeah and the people at the top are billionaires and they're financial terrorists they're psychotic by nature of their investments if nothing else they have to be financial terrorists. Workers in this country are not middle class. A former caller was right. You're middle class, soundly, and God bless you. Very productive as a middle class member. Working class, never been middle class in any country so far, as far as I
3: can tell. Well, the reason for my call... I mean, you know, it, 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 that all depends on where you draw your lines and how you define those words. I mean... Their investments
2: bring death and destruction to bring them financial profit, and I don't know how else to explain it than psychosis.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. no, my my point, though, slightly pushing back on what you're saying, James, is that during that mm-hmm. period from the 1940s until the 1990s, really, the middle class and the working class had a huge overlap. And what has happened since the 1990s as a, re, as a result of Reaganism and free trade in particular uh, and the deunionization of America is that that overlap between the middle class and the working class has decoupled, and increasingly the middle class has pulled away from the from the working class. I you know I I would go along with you on that, but your point about if financialization and the investor class, where are you going with that?
2: Well, something I wondered about was futures because I was interested to note recently that apparently they were invented, whatever kind of fraud scheme they are, in 1975. And prior to that, they didn't exist.
3: No, I just no.
2: wonder what kind of scheme this is. That's F- not futures correct.
3: markets go back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, in fact, the Dutch tulip uh, mania back in the 1600s was in large part happening in a futures market. The futures markets came about by and large in the United States. They became a big thing, and the reason that they were traded on the Chicago Commodity Exchange back in the day was for farmers. If you were a farmer, and you were planting your, let's say you're planting wheat this year, and you plant your crop, and it's spring, and you need some money to live on between now and the fall, and so you think your crop is going to be worth, say, a hundred thousand bucks, If it's a really good year with great weather, your crop will be worth $110,000. If it's a really crappy year and it rains a lot um, and you lose some of your crop, your crop's only going to be worth $90,000 at the end of the year. So what you do is you go out to Kellogg's and you say, hey, Kellogg's, I will sell you in advance my crop, for a hundred thousand dollars, because that's what I think is probably the the safe middle point. I'll sell it to you for a hundred thousand bucks. Kellogg's buys that. That's a future. They buy. It's an option to buy your wheat at a particular price. Now Kellogg's then can turn around and say to uh, you know a competitor, say Post, if Post is still around. I don't know. Um, you know, I used don't. to make uh, uh, grape nuts. Uh, they can say to Post, hey, we've got a future for you know a uh, uh, hundred thousand barrels of wheat. And we probably won't use them, so we'll sell them to you. It's a hundred thousand dollar future, we'll sell it to you for a hundred and five thousand. And so you get all this trading in futures. That that's really where it all started, James. And it was to protect yeah, the farmers. So, you know, fraudulent because
2: it's American now fraudulent because it's USA.
3: Oh, it's been turned into a scam. I mean, <laughs> probably half the activity on the futures market now has absolutely nothing to do with that kind of thing. Airlines, by the way, do the same Thank thing you. with jet fuel. They buy jet fuel futures. But so much of it now is just speculation. You're right. larry in los angeles hey larry what's
5: up hey one of the problems that biden is having is the problem that all democrats have and that is our liberal biased media has a vicious right wing swing to it too bad um, so much for but, liberal uh, media yeah yeah when bill clinton was president and we were having the tech boom it was a true revolution republicans named it a bubble the one thing that you'll Know about bubbles. Bubbles do not come back and then lead the economies for the next couple of decades. That tech boom was a real tech revolution.
3: You're right. And you're uh, right. Now, the stock market did go up a little more than it should have as a result of that, but you're absolutely right. Not. You don't think so? Actually, not. What happened is uh, Alan Greenspan was trying to
5: get George W. Bush into the White House, so he took the Fed rate up to six and a half percent for Bill Clinton while that uh, tech boom was going. That destroyed the tech boom in America, but it didn't destroy it in China. China right. came in and picked up bargains in America, and they've been running ever since, running ahead of us ever since, not, not actually leading us, but or gaining on us. And they may have left us, uh, reached the point now where they're ahead of us. But it was, the, it was what Alan Greenspan did to destroy Bill Clinton's economy, and then the news media just picked up on the talking points of the Republicans. It was yeah. a, they called it a, a bubble. And like I said, bubbles don't come back and lead the world in the economy for decades on end. Right. It was yeah, true tech is, industrial. I mean, look at the
3: S&P. Tech is, is, is still driving the economy.
5: It's still doing it. And and China never had a recession back then. We yeah. did. Yeah. And the only reason why we did is because the Republicans made it happen, which is something that they try to do every time. Right. When Obama was in the White House, the uh, Federal Reserve kept the uh, Fed rate down to zero Keeping it down to zero actually stifles the economy, but also raising it also causes the stock market to go down. So just as Obama was uh, ending his economy, I mean his uh, stay in the White House, just like Bill Clinton, the Fed started raising the interest rates. Right. And they did it to Obama. They did it to Carter. They did it to uh, Clinton. To Bill Clinton. And then if you look at what happens whenever a Republican's in the White House, the Fed rate always goes down in those last years. Like, right. like and they're hat talking
3: hat. about now raising it just in time for the 2022 election again.
5: Right, and they did it for the 20 uh, the 1994 election also. That's what um, uh, uh, Alan Greenspan did then. Hmm. They do this every time if, if uh, the recession, the um, election time comes along because they're trying to get Republicans in the White House, and Amazing. then and then the news media just picks up on the right wing talking points, and so they they right now. They're not talking about the fact that, oh, my, what happened to all those long lines, food lines that were occurring a year ago when um, we were in Trump time? They're not comparing Biden with Trump time. But in Trump time, a year ago, uh, the lines went on for miles. People didn't have enough food to eat. Biden took care of that. That's gone now. Yeah. I looked at the internet this morning, and I couldn't find a single um, story about um, food lines.
3: You're right. You're right, and the, and those stories have have just largely vanished. I mean, you know, we've, yeah, we've got some and
5: new problems. So what's, but, what's the big the big story now is inflation. But if inflation is hurting Americans so badly, you would see them in those food food lines because we would be running out of food. We're not running out of food, so inflation is not really hurting the American people bad right now.
3: Yeah, and like it did a year ago. Yeah, and I do think it's going to be a temporary thing. I mean, you know, there there will be a lasting impact from it, but I think it's a temporary thing.
5: But if you listen to right-wing TV and right-wing radio, all they're talking about right now is inflation and how it's killing Americans. Yeah. And they're also lying that I mean, the dollar has lost value, when in yeah. fact it's gained value.
3: Yeah, you're right. They're trying to jawbone down the economy, basically. I, I, I looked at the writing.com this morning, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, and all the, you're absolutely right, Larry. All, Not all, but many of the headlines on the right-wing sites are all about, you know, Biden's destroying the economy. Right. Larry, I always learn something from you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for the call. Richard Wolf. Dr. Richard Wolf is up next. You're listening
2: to Tom Hartman.
3: Today on the Tom Hartman Book Club with Tom Hartman University, we're reading from what is apparently Donald Trump's second favorite book, his Number one, according to his first wife, as I recall, was the collected speeches of Adolf Hitler, which was on his bedstand next to his bed for years. But when he was asked by reporters his favorite book, he said, P.T. Barnum's The Art of Money-Getting, or Golden Rules for Making Money. So I thought, hey, let's check this out. This is from the introduction. Those who really desire to attain an independence have only to set their minds upon it and adopt the proper means as they do in regard to any other object which they wish to accomplish and the thing is easily done. But however easy it may be found to make money, I have no doubt many of my hearers will agree it is the most difficult thing in the world to keep it. The road to wealth is, as Dr. Ben Franklin truly says, as plain as the road to the mill. It consists simply in expending less than we earn. That seems to be a very simple problem. Mr. Micawber, uh, one of the those happy creations of the genial Dickens, puts the case in a strong light when he says that to have an income of 20 pounds per pa- annum and spend 20 pounds and six pence is to be the most miserable of men, whereas to have an income of only 20 pounds and spend but 19 pounds and six pence is to be the happiest of mortals. Many of my readers may say, we understand this, this is economy, and we know economy is wealth, we know we can't eat our cake and keep it also. Yet I beg to say that perhaps more cases of failure arise from mistakes on this point than almost any other. The fact is, many people think they understand economy when they really do not. True economy is misapprehended and people go through life without properly comprehending what that principle is. One person says, "I have an income of so much, and here's my neighbor who has the same. yet every year he gets something ahead and I fall short. Why is it? I know all about economy. Well, he thinks he does, but he does not. There are many who think that economy consists in saving cheese parings and candle ends. in mind this is written in the late 1900s, in cutting off two pence from the laundress's bill and doing all sorts of little mean, dirty things. Economy is not meanness. The misfortune is also that this class of persons let their economy apply in only one direction. They fancy that they are so wonderfully economical in saving a half penny where they ought to spend two pence that they think they can afford to squander in other directions. A few years ago, before kerosene oil was discovered or thought of, one might stop overnight at almost any farmer's house in the agricultural districts to get a very good supper. But after supper, he might attempt to read in the sitting room and would find it impossible with insufficient light from just one candle. The hostess, seeing his dilemma, would say, It is rather difficult to read here in the evenings. The proverb said, You must have a ship at sea in order to be able to burn two candles at once. We never have an extra candle except on extra occasions. Those extra occasions occur perhaps twice a year. In this way, the good woman saves five, six, or ten dollars in that time, the information which might be derived from having an extra candle would, of course, far outweigh a ton of candles. But the trouble does not end there. Feeling that she is so economical in tallow candles, she thinks she can afford to go frequently to the village and spend 20 or $30 for ribbons and furlough many of which are not necessary. This false economy may frequently be seen in men of business, and in those instances it often runs to paper writing. You find good businessmen who save all the old envelopes and scraps and would not tear a new sheet of paper if they could avoid it for the world. It's all very well. They may in this way save 5 or $10 a year. But being so economical, only in no paper, they think they can afford to waste time, to have expensive parties, and to drive their own carriages. This is an illustration of Dr. Franklin's, quote, saving at the spigot and wasting at the bunghole, or pennywise and pound foolish. Punch, in speaking of this one idea class of people, says... They are like the man who bought a penny herring for his family's dinner and then hired a coach and four to take it home. I never knew a man who succeeded to succeed by practicing this kind of economy. True economy consists in always making the income exceed the outgo. Wear the old clothes a little longer if necessary. Dispense with a new pair of gloves. Mend the old dress. Live on plainer food if need be. So that under all circumstances, unless some unforeseen accident occurs, there will be a margin in favor of the income. Penny here, a dollar there, placed at interest, goes on accumulating, and in this way, the real desire is is attained. It requires some training, perhaps, to accomplish this economy, but once used to it, you will find there is more satisfaction in rational saving than in irrational spending. Here is a recipe which I recommend. I have found it to work an excellent cure for extravagance and especially for mistaken economy. When you find that you have no surplus at the end of the year and yet have a good income, I advise you to take a few sheets of paper and form them into a book and mark down every item of expenditure. Posted every day or week in two columns, one headed necessities, the other comforts, and the other headed luxuries. And you will find that the latter column will be double, triple, and frequently ten times greater than the former. The real comfort of life costs but a small portion of what most of us can earn. Dr. Franklin said, It is the eyes of others and not our own eyes which ruin us. If all the world were blind except myself, I should not care for fine clothes and furniture. It is the fear of what Mrs. Grundy may say that keeps the noses of most worthy families to the grindstone. In America, many persons like to repeat, we are all free and equal, but it is a great mistake in more senses than one. That we are born free and equal is a glorious truth in one sense, yet we are not all born equally rich, and we never shall be. So, anyhow, the book is The Art of Money Getting or Golden Rules for Making Money by P.T. Barnum. It's actually a pretty good book.
0: Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
3: On the line with us is our old friend, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of DemocracyAtWork.info, author of numerous books. His most recent, which is also now available as an ebook. The sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. Democracywork.info, RD Wolf with two Fs.com, his website, so you can tweet him at ProfWolf, p-r-o-f-w-o-l-f-f. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Basically, moving money around generally does not create wealth. It's just moving money around. It's transferring it from one class to another i'm wondering if you could define what financialization is there's a lot of talk about how the american economy as we've deindustrialized over the past 40 years of this neoliberal free trade policy as as manufacturing has gone down financialization has gone up what does that mean
7: well basically the reality is that the financial sector the the part of our economy that, as you rightly put it, moves money around, has now successfully inserted itself literally into every pore of the economy that we we live in. Uh, Governments cannot do anything anymore without turning to the bankers, the insurance companies, and the others from whom they must borrow trillions of dollars in order to function, even in a most basic way. Corporations, which used to be uh, business entities that bought inputs, hired workers, and produced outputs, now have to spend huge amounts of time, energy, uh, percentages of their personnel. Dealing with moving money around. Corporations, for example, are in debt on a scale we've never seen in the history of the United States, or indeed of any capitalism. Uh, Every transaction corporations make has to be undertaken with an eye to the banker. Can they borrow to cover this transaction? Will they be able to get enough cash flow to service the debts that they've accumulated? And finally, households. This is, in some ways, the most remarkable thing of the last 30 to 40 years, that people who used to earn money working would then go out and spend the money in the grocery store or the department store or the hardware store. Now, they're half of the time Borrowing the money, even if they go into a little corner store to get a, uh, a bottled water, they will use a credit card, for example, which is a loan. It's the way it works: is that the bank literally lends you the money to buy that. To- bottle of water, but instead of giving you the money to hand over to the merchant, uh, the bank directly credits the merchant with the money and debits your account. It means that the bank is in your face, in your business, literally all day, every day. And, And the result is... That the, the, the bankers, having become the big middlemen, we used to call them, are taking a cut out of everything. Every transaction gives the financial uh, folks a commission, an interest rate, a share uh... a say in what's going on and they used it to become the big growth sector so all the people who don't have jobs in manufacturing if they're lucky get a job working somewhere uh, in the insurance business which is a kind of financial business it simply gives us uh, some promise of money in exchange for our paying them premiums. It's just a money-moving operation. And so we now have a capitalism in which everything is mediated uh, by debt. Everything is interspersed with a debt someone has to someone else. And here's one important consequence for people to take seriously. We're in a kind of new world. If suddenly, for example, over the last 18 months, we have a pandemic which our system can't handle, and that's what we had, suddenly large numbers of people had no job, businesses couldn't function, and that would be bad enough. But that meant all these people and all these businesses could not service their debts. They couldn't pay the interest, they couldn't pay back uh, the principal that they owned, and that put all kinds of institutions not immediately affected by the pandemic into a terrible situation because this network of debt links everybody to everybody else, and so it makes our system much more vulnerable to instability than it already was.
3: So how did we get into this and and assuming that it's not a good thing for our economy, how do we get out of it?
7: Well, the way we got into it is the way a capitalist economy gets into anything. Somebody somewhere has a profit motive. As we know, the dominant rule of our business is you set up a business, you get into a business, you expand the business, if and so far as it's profitable. Uh, So I'll give you one example. Banks used to be mostly about lending money to businesses then one of them said, wait a minute, maybe we can figure out a way to make money not only by lending to businesses, but let's see if we can lend to the average man and woman uh, adult in this country. And and that was a decision. Uh, Before the 1970s, there wasn't much in the way of consumer lending other than for the mortgage for your home. And before the 1930s, we didn't have much of that either. But after the 70s, we really went to town, led by institutions like Citibank and Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and so on, to hook the average person into debt, into financialization. And this was done uh, by making the automobile something you could afford with a, do- with a loan that you had to pay off uh, by giving you a credit card. Before the 70s, only a few business people had that American Express card. But afterwards, the average American has got a wallet full of these credit cards. Every one of them is linking that person to a bank and therefore to the financialization. And then the biggest one of all of the last 30 years was hooking an entire generation of college students so they are now carriers of debt, worried sick that they won't be able to earn the money to pay it back, to keep their credit rating. Uh, The credit rating holds us all hostage. Uh, We are all working for the financial sector directly or indirectly. That's a process of profit-driven banking that led the way in doing all of that. And I'm afraid that the only answer to your question, how do we get out of it, is this is now so core a part of our economic system that nothing less than changing the system is going to get us out of it. And and I'm afraid that we are going to be seeing more and more instability uh, as people realize that this network, this cobweb of debt linking us to to one another, means that if any part of this system gets in trouble, we're all going to be dragged down with it, because we're all hooked into one another through this network of debt. And you can see it happening as the government now, to back up a system in trouble, has to pump trillions and trillions of dollars into the financial sector, because that's where the money initially goes, in order to keep this game going. I'm very, very fearful that the economic uh, downturns, the one we had in 2000, so-called dot-com, the one we had in 2008, so-called subprime mortgage, and the one we're still in now, the so-called COVID, each of them worse than the one before, are showing us that financialization goes together with an even greater danger of the instability built into our system than we already had.
3: So I remember back in the 70s or 80s, I think it was, In fact, I think it was in the 80s when uh, General Motors got into the lending business. They created uh, GMAC, you know, basically a a lending branch uh, figured, hey, you know, the banks are making money, loaning people money to buy cars. Why don't we get in on this? Back then, by the way, you could deduct the interest on your on your car loans. Reagan did away with that in one of his 18 tax increases on working people. Um, uh, General Electric famously had, you know, a finance division. I think both of those got bailed out heavily by both Bush and Obama during the 2008 crash. I read someplace, uh, geez, this was a year or so, so ago, that Apple actually made more money in one particular recent year um, with financial instruments and moving money around and debt and, and tax avoidance than they did selling products. Now, I can't say that that's for sure true, but you know they sure made a hell of a lot of money. And this yeah. is increasingly happening. These are things that not only were not common practices prior to the neoliberal era, prior to Reaganism by and large, um, and the changes in the banking laws in the 70s that allowed the, the credit card companies to explode, but um, were actually illegal in many regards. It is uh, you know rather short of bringing down the entire capitalist system, which I, you know I think you and I both agree is probably unlikely to happen at least in this decade. Can we at least re-regulate some of this stuff?
7: Sure, we could. Hypothetically, we could limit it. But it doesn't look like we have the political muscle compared to this financialized sector to do that. A couple of comments. You can go back to to William Shakespeare and before that. Remember the famous Shakespeare line, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Shakespeare understood that when you get into that on either end, you get hooked by the very process that feeds on itself and makes the situation more and more dangerous we're living out the wisdom of what william shakespeare wanted to say you are right about general motors if you go back to those years you can see and general motors knew this that they were making more profit lending to the people who bought their cars than they were making on the cars in fact They lowered the prices of their cars in part to hook people in to buying them at the attractive price and then borrowing from General Motors to pay for it, not understanding that the interest General Motors got made that car more expensive than the original price was. I don't think we can break out of this until we confront the system because the people who run the finance are pretty close to running the system as yeah. well.
3: Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, RD Wolf. Prof Wolf on Twitter, rdwolf.com as well. Professor, thank you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.